Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, Dan, for coming and everybody else. Uh, I think for the next 50 minutes, I seek to give an empirical account that sheds light on who benefited from Zimbabwe's controversial fast-track land reform program in Chipinge district. I interrogate how and why some benefited, whereas others did not. Fast-track refers to the post-2000 radical and violent invasions of largely former white-owned commercial farms. So first, I'll give a brief overview of Zimbabwe and its politics for the benefit of those like Michelle, who are still to learn a bit more about the country. <laughs> Second, I look at who benefited from the land reform at a national level on both A1 and A2 farms. A1 refers to the small-scale farms, whereas A2 refers to the medium and large-scale farms. Third, I'll focus on agrarian change in my district of study. Then fourth is a long section that explores in detail who got land, how and why before I conclude. So the first slide, as you see, shows the map of Zimbabwe with agricultural zones and the location of Chipinge uh, in the far southeast. Yeah, that's on the Mozambique border. <coughs> So Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwe we are talking about is about 39.1 million hectares. It is divided into five agricultural zones depending on annual patterns of rainfall. According to government recommendations, agriculture varies from region to region, from specialized and diversified farming in region one, which receives over 1,000 millimeters of rain for a year to extensive farming in Region 5, which receives less than 500 millimeters a year. Region 1 and 2 can roughly be divided into the high veld, and 3, 4, and 5 into the low veld. Administratively, Zimbabwe is divided into 10 provinces, then districts, wards, and the village is the lowest governance unit. It has an estimated population of about 12 million citizens. And briefly on Zimbabwe politics. Zimbabwe earned its independence from British colonial rule in 1980. The Zimbabwe National Union Patriotic Front, ZANU-PF, led by President Mugabe, was the dominant political party since independence until 2008 when Mugabe lost to Morgan Tsvangirai's Movement for Democratic Change, MDC. This precipitated an election crisis, and the regional body, the Southern Africa Development Community, SADAC, brokered an inclusive government. So currently, Zimbabwe is governed by three political parties, ZANU-PF, led by President Robert Mugabe, the MDC, led by Morgan Tsvangirai, then another MDC, uh, which is led by, it's not clear who is the leader, there's contestation. Uh, the, the, the MDC split in 2005, but the other MDC further split this year. <coughs> Referring to splits during the Liberation War, my undergraduate professor of uh, political science, Professor Masipula Store, once remarked, if you were to put two Zimbabweans on the moon, and visited them the next day, 
you would find that they have formed three parties. <laughs> However, the, the, the current three political parties in government are not the only parties. Even before 2000, there were rival opposition parties, but ZANU-PF employed violence as a technology of rule when faced with opposition, such as the brutal violent campaign against ZAPU in Matebeleland in the 1980s and the persecution of the Zimbabwe Unity Movement and Opposition Party in the 1990s. But Chipinga District, which I focus on, has some particular politics. Since Zimbabwe's independence, Chipinga has been a stronghold of an opposition party called the Zimbabwe African National Union, popularly known as Ndonga in local lexicon. And this was led by Reverend Ndabaningi Stolle, a nationalist and founder president of the original <coughs> ZANU in 1963. This is the same ZANU that Mugabe leads today. Even at the height of ZANU-PFU's popularity in Zimbabwe, People in Chipinge have always voted for the opposition. Let me point out that in 1990, ZANU-PF wanted to promote a one-party state, but managed to win 117 out of 120 contested parliamentary seats. Two of the three parliamentary seats it lost were in Chipinge district. The ZANU leader was charged with treason for allegedly trying to topple Mugabe's government and was convicted and barred from representing Chipinge constituents. In the June 2000 parliamentary election, for the first time, ZANU-PF won Chipinge North at the height of fast-track land reform. ZANU-PF's new constituents geographically covered the high veld where fast-track occurred. Recently, in the March 29, 2008 general election, ZANU-PF managed to win one parliamentary seat in the district, Chipinge Central, which covers most of the fast-track resettlement schemes and lost all the other three seats in the lower belt. In as much as this gives us a general trajectory, voters have other social, political, and economic needs that influence how they vote. Let us now look at Zimbabwe's trajectory of national land distribution from independence from 1980 to 2010. As my next slide shows, in 1980, mainly white-owned large-scale commercial farmers uh, covered about 15.5 million hectares, that is 42% of the primary agricultural land. But due to the early 1980s and 1990s land reforms, this was reduced in year 2000 to 11.7 million hectares. But following fast track, large-scale commercial farms have been reduced to 3.4 million hectares as of 2010. Within this change, 4.1 million hectares have been assigned to smallholder farmers and 3.5 million hectares to large-scale commercial farmers. Yes, radical restructuring occurred, but the question is who got what? There are a number of scholars who have been doing work on resettlement schemes. The likes of Professor Sam Moyo, Dr. Prosper Matent, Dr. Nelson Marongwe, among others. But one publication that has shaped the terrain is Skunzi's major book, Myth and Realities. So I will have a bias toward it tonight. It seems to look at the outcome of fast track and pays little attention to the process, which I think is intricately linked to the outcomes. One argument of interest 
they make is that fast track land reform is not a disaster and that beneficiaries of fast track are largely ordinary people. But there are also upcoming young scholars like Philip Pasrai who helped to shape my perspectives. Uh, under the large scale model A2, roughly 20,000 households benefited in total. But I differentiate the beneficiaries under A2 model into groups for a more nuanced understanding. And I have group A, which I call the political cronies. <laughs> I argue that the beneficiaries of land reform within this group were largely political cronies in the sense of those in the immediate power circles at the core of the ZANU-PF regime who received the farms on a scale of the previous white owners. White settlers had an average farm size of 2,000 hectares per individual and this group not only maintained but also consolidated some farms and acquired multiple farms. These were mainly the president, his deputies, the cabinet ministers, deputy ministers, and the judges. The government's own land audit, the Utete report, confirms this trend. Though Matondi acknowledges that there are about 400 individuals nationally who received about 2 million hectares, but he argues that fast trade cannot be delegitimized because of the few bad apples in the basket. However, he ignores the principle of social justice and equity that was used by government to justify fast trade. <coughs> Secondly, he ignores the potential cost because if you are to argue in terms of social equity, then more households were potentially deprived. Third, the group is influential beyond its numbers. This was rather deracialization rather than redistribution. Group B, uh, those who benefited the large-scale farmers, <coughs> are the land grabbers. This is a group of about 2,400 black commercial farmers who got between 500 and 1,000 hectares, and it is Professor Selmoyo who calls them land grabbers. In most cases, the farms they owned exceeded the government-designated maximum five farm sizes. And based on his study, Marongwe argues that 95% of these beneficiaries were not selected on the basis of police prescriptions, and it was left in the hands of the powerful individuals. And Group C within these A2 beneficiaries is what I call the contested beneficiaries. And I will not go deep into that uh, uh, today. Anyway, on A1 farms, the small-scale farms, most government and independent figures indicate that around 145,000 households benefited from fast-track land reform with hectares ranging between 0.2 and 30 hectares for each household. Most scholarly work acknowledges the role of political patronage in the acquisition of A2 large-scale farms, but they underplay this on A1 resettlement schemes. Uh, today, I argue that some A1 land reform beneficiaries are clients of patronage networks. Even though the A1 small-scale farmers have other legitimate claims to land, they are being subordinated to a partisan state and authoritarian ruling party that is willing to exclude other ordinary people with wrong or weak political ties in a highly politicized landscape. Now let us look at the agrarian change in Chipinge district. I want to say that data is difficult to find. 
Uh, it is unlike in other countries where you can easily get data on government websites. You have to go to the field and generate it from the field. So my next slide will show the pre-2000 agrarian structure and maybe you can just concentrate on the, on the red zones. This is for being a district. Prior to first track, first track, Chipinga district was dominated by white-owned individual and family-owned large-scale commercial farms and estates, owned by private companies, which covered about 179,479,000 hectares of land, with 141,230 hectares in the high veld. But following fast track, uh, the next slide shows the post-2000 agrarian structure. Between 2000 and 2011, 107,741 hectares belonging to former white commercial farmers in the district were redistributed, mostly to small-scale agricultural producers and medium to large-scale black commercial farmers. Within this change, black farmers now occupy 96,944 hectares of land in the high veld. Out of the 132 former white farmers in the district, only seven remained at the time of fieldwork. Most of the large-scale farms left are owned by private companies. <coughs> Some people, led by war veterans, invited these private estates, which produced bananas, coffee and tea, but they were driven out violently by the anti-riot police in late 2000. One responded recalled. The war veterans wanted to resist, but they were beaten by the riot police, and no one ever returned to that place. This shows that the Zimbabwean state made concessions to some sections of domestic and international capital at the height of confrontation. And secondly, this questions the narrative that the state had lost control. The state would protect what worked in its favor. And the next slide will show you the distribution of the A1 small-scale farmers who benefited from fast track uh, in the high veld of Chipinge. So, out of the 96,944 hectares of land redistributed in the high veld, uh, A1 farmers, a total of 4,881 households, occupy uh, 36,132 hectares of land, whereas 922 A2 farmers own the bulk of the remainder, with a few hectares occupied by informal settlers. So the next slide will show us the distribution of the A2 farmers within the district. How did people get land then? I think the institutional framework put in place to oversee fast track was the district land committee. And in most cases, it had the final say in confirmation of land occupations or allocation of land to applicants. It was made up of, uh, this is the district land committee, of the district administrator who was the chairperson, the Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association chairperson. And this association is aligned to ZANU-PF. And there was the ZANU-PF district chairperson and the head of Department of Agritech. Um, Agritech is a department within the Ministry of Agriculture. 
Uh, its main mission is to provide administrative, technical, and advisory support to farmers. And there was also the head of Department of Lands and the chief's representative and the security sector representative from the president's office. And there's no single story as to how land was taken on the ground. My data based on three resettlement schemes shows three trajectories. The first, land invasions. The second, replacement of original occupiers. And the third, allocation through a formal process. And the sample I used is, is, is reflected in this next slide. There's no single, uh, on, on yeah, the first farm, no, the second farm. On Wolfscrab farm, the white owner uh, used to specialize in timber production, mainly growing gum trees, but also produced coffee and macadamia. ZANU-PF local structures, the war veterans and the traditional leaders who had been displaced historically from the same farm led the land invasion. And on Glenview, the white owner offered a portion of his farm to the Minister of Lands for resettlement. So the government officials subdivided the farm into A1 farms, ranging from 3 to 10 hectares. And at Wedgehill Farm, the, the previous owner used to specialize in production of macadamia and he started venturing into coffee production at the time of the invasions. However, the farm owner fled to Australia at the height of violence. And the former Wedgehill farm workers and those from other adjacent farms, they invaded this farm and started clearing the land for cultivation of maize, uprooting the young coffee plants and cutting some gum trees. However, the, the farm worker honeymoon was short-lived as the Ministry of Lands officially designated the farm as vacant and subdivided it into A1 farms. The farm was then allocated by the DLC, the District Land Committee. Who got the land? I think for both government officials and scholars, it is difficult to disentangle categories of settlers to come up with a summary that best represents who got what because people have multiple identities. A business person can double up as a civil servant, whereas the latter can be employed in the security services and vice versa. Scholars are unlikely to agree on a single template that best represents who got what, as it has implications on interpreting both the fast-track beneficiary selection process and its outcome, which remains intellectually contested. Abstractions are un unavoidable in this case. But the argument is which categories are more useful for a particular context. In their seminal study, Schoons' summation of categories of settlers that got land is based on the occupation of the household head prior to getting land, which is one possible way. Based on this criteria, they argue that 68.2% of new settlers were a diverse ordinary group with about half of all new settlers coming from nearby communal areas. It could be useful to reproduce the categories used by schools for direct comparison. 
but emphasis should be determined by local dynamics, at least until such a time scholars have gathered empirical data district by district to give a clearer national picture. So the next section shows the singular categories that take precedence in summarizing the Mashingo data with the ordinary clearly dominating. While there can be debates around what ordinary really means, I argue that classifying land reform beneficiaries according to their previous professions and describing them as ordinary based on not having formal employment or of low income and assets or simply from adjacent communal areas without considering the distinct social status one holds is inadequate if one is to explore the nuances of political patronage in gaining access to land. The ordinary can still be rich in political capital and big lines of patronage networks and beneficiaries of patronage relations linked to the ruling elite. For example, schools define ordinary as not members of the other categories they identify on their profile and as largely asset and income poor. With this approach, they argue that all war veterans on A1 small-scale villagized farms in their study sites were ordinary beneficiaries. This is because, I quote, many had long dropped their war veteran identity after 20 years of the Liberation War. Yet in Chipinge, and possibly in Mashingo too, some war veterans reinvented their identity as it became political currents in gaining access to land through mobilization, land invasions, and the informal allocation process during fast track. The ordinary should not include members of distinct interest groups such as war veterans, traditional authorities, civil servants, security services, and business persons. And the next slide shows my categories informed by local context and local processes. And there are three dominant types of beneficiaries, war veterans, traditional authorities, and civil servants. <laughs> Overall, those that dominate are not the ordinary, but are civil servants. The question is why? In order to get land, civil servants in Chipinke district would submit their applications to their respective head of department. We would not only forward the application, but recommend beneficiaries to the district land committee. Agritechs and land representatives, as we have shown, they sit in the district land committee. The allocation of posts to head government departments at district level had become highly politicized and partisan after 2000, as the thin line between ZANU-PF and the state was eroded. One of the employees in the Chipinga Agritech Department emphasized, I quote, Our district agricultural extension officer has a diploma from an unknown institution, yet most of his subordinates have degrees from universities. There was a human resources audit that recommended that he be demoted, but ZANU-PF district leadership came to back him up because he's a strong party cutter. So he's hanging in there on a party ticket, not on the basis of competence, close quote. So within this context, personal, state, and party interests became conflated. For example, the late uh, uh, Mr. Samuel Zuse, a Chipinge magistrate, deemed to be politically correct by most war veterans I spoke to. 
presided over the case of a white farmer, Mr. Mike J, and convicted him because he was refusing to vacate his Newcastle farm. The magistrate who presided over the case is the one who had been allocated Mike J's farm, but he did not excuse himself. <laughs> My next slide shows Mr. Samuels, who said the magistrate is off a letter. <coughs> uh, not that the minister in the offer letter reserved the right to withdraw the offer any time, which effectively means the beneficiary is obliged to reassert his legitimacy on the land. Uh, let me read it since it's not clear. The minister reserves the right to withdraw or change this offer if he deems it necessary, or if you are found in breach of any of the set conditions. In the event of a withdrawal or a change of this offer, no compensation arising from this offer shall be claimable or payable whatsoever. And on the ground, civil servants perceived to be colluding with the opposition were in many cases subjected to violence by the local war veterans in a tactical manner that served to terrify other civil servants. For example, Mr. Walter Chikwana, another Chipinge magistrate, was, was assaulted in August 2002 by war veterans for passing a judgment in favor of MDC supporters. One of my key informants recalled that war veterans invaded the court and started beating the magistrate inside the court and took him to, government, to a government complex to parade him to other civil servants where they beat him further. More recently, war veterans again invaded the Chipinge Magistrate Court in April 2010, singing songs in praise of ZANU-PF and threatening to assault Magistrate Thomas Masendeke, who had ordered an eviction of war veterans and other settlers from a farm they had invaded. He had to escape through the window from the court in his robes, uh, running for dear life. The DA was also threatened for keeping such people in the district. And the civil servants who got land in Chipinge attend ZANU-PF political meetings and rallies, for they have to show continuous loyalty as a way to safeguard their land. It is increasingly becoming difficult for the civil servants who get land to act outside the interest of the ZANU-PF ruling elite. On the other end, we have traditional authorities and war veterans who were major beneficiaries of land reform. Why? After independence, I think the government of Zimbabwe pursued a decentralization in local government such that um, it removed most powers traditional authorities had during the colonial era and placed them in elected structures. <coughs> but with waning rural legitimacy in the late 1990s, the ZANU-PF ruling elite shifted and developed a strategy to co-opt traditional leaders in their ideological and mobilization campaign for political control. Alongside the co-option of traditional authorities, some war veterans were co-opted by the ZANU-PF elite in early 2000. President Mugabe invited Chenjerai Wundt, then chairman of the war veterans, at a ZANU-PF Central Committee meeting on 18 February. 2000, and asked him personally to lead the ZANU-PF election campaign and offered him a special, a special position in the Central Committee of ZANU-PF. 
Such co-option of war veterans and traditional leaders would lend legitimacy to the government's ongoing anti-colonial and anti-settler rhetoric and appeal to a rural constituents as part of a continuing struggle of liberation against the forces of imperialism at a time of political discontent. Yet, the redistribution agenda and neo-colonial discourse was meant to hide authoritarian, exclusive, and repressive politics. In Chipinge, a partisan discourse of Pamberinam Gabe forward with the president also formed part of claims to land by war veterans and traditional leaders because historical and traditional claims were not enough to ensure one is tenure, but political loyalty reassess legitimacy in ongoing contestations over resettlement land in Chipinge. I mean, during fieldwork, I observed that it was not just a farming landscape, but a heavily politicized and zanonized landscape, with campaign posters of President Mugabe still visible on some rocks and homesteads. A military base was set up at, at a farm I was researching in early to 2011 to carry out political intimidation campaigns in the form of Pungues. These are all-night political education campaigns. <clears throat> then I was advised by a security agent to wind up my fieldwork because of the anticipated election. This security guy uh, is the one who was assigned to monitor me during fieldwork to ensure that I was not pushing a regime change agenda. Uh, on the on the resettlement farms, and uh, I, I remember my high school literature teacher, Mr. Ravu, once said to me, "Sometimes, if you leave two people in a room, uh, and you come back, you find one controlling the other, either physically or mentally." So I spent so much time with this security agent official that uh, by the time I left, I don't know who was controlling the other. But he was now asking questions like, eh, what is a thesis? And, uh, uh, and he was thinking about writing on policing and uh, safety in communities. Uh, okay, let me emphasize that not all war veterans uh, endorsed the ruling party's political project of mobilizing rural support, but some played into the hands of the ruling party by becoming agents of an authoritarian state. Even at the national level, some of the war veterans refused to be part of the ZANU-PF governing elite agenda, and they formed the Zimbabwe Liberators Platform in 2000, whose objective was to, I quote, assist war veterans so that they would not become vulnerable to manipulation by unscrupulous politicians, among other things. But if you want to trace these divisions uh, during the Liberation War, you can see uh, Dr. Miles Tendi's book, Making History in Mugabe, Zimbabwe. So some war veterans who supported opposition parties, notably the MDC and Zanundonga and Chipingi, they alleged victimization in the land allocation process. But a member of the Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association, aligned to ZANU-PF, defended the association's partisan position. I quote, those who were supporting the MDC must go and get their land in Britain. The land is for sons of the soil, not sell out. 
again on the ordinary beneficiaries. Not all beneficiaries who can argue, arguably be classified as ordinary people are exempt from the politics of patronage with ZANU-PF as the vehicle. For some ordinary families in the communal areas of Chipinge to get land, they had to apply to the chairperson of ZANU-PF in their respective ward, who would submit the names to the ZANU-PF district chair, who would then forward the names to the district land committee where he had a seat. So materially, as the schools observed, they can be defined as largely asset and income poor. But it does not mean that the poor cannot be clients within the ruling party's patronage networks. Why is it that other ordinary people who wanted land were excluded? An aspiring beneficiary explained. The chairperson, that is the ZANU-PF chairperson, was saying the land is for ZANU-PF people only. Others encouraged me to submit my application directly to the Minister of Lands. But without any connection, I realized it was a futile exercise. So I have decided to wait because our day will come. An MDC supporter who was excluded from land reform also stated, Everyone wants land, but the same war veterans who were intimidating us are the ones who were dishing land, so it was impossible to break through. The exclusional process possibly shaped people's re reactions to the partisan land redistribution program, as indicated by a communal farmer in the law veld. Because we are left out in this process, we are still suffering from food shortages. It is very difficult to produce on this sandy soil, and it rarely rains in the law veld. We just hear stories that those who were resettled are enjoying having three meals a day and lots of money. But we know how we will punish the politicians, as we did in the previous election. As I have noted before, it is important to note that ZANU-PF lost elections in the Chipingelow Veld, but won elections in the High Veld with concentrated resettlement schemes. I think most scholars have confused the ZANU-PF March 29, 2008 loss of support in communal areas with a reversal of ZANU-PF's electoral support in resettlement schemes. Ranger, Terence Ranger, <coughs> argues that the peasantry did not support Mugabe despite land redistribution in the March 29, 2008 election. I think readings of results by polling stations can help clarify this misinterpretation. Otherwise, ZANU-PF's substantive rural support was concentrated in the resettlement schemes, at least in Chipinge. I have a, a breakdown of the results uh, to make my point in that thing. So, why then do my results differ to a certain degree from those of schools? I think there are four possible explanations. First, my findings on who got what during fast track differ because of different contexts. Whereas much of Mashingo, where schools researched, lie in agroecological zone 3 and 4 designated for extensive and semi-intensive farming, land reform dynamics in Chipinge, they were key in natural region 1 and 2, meant for specialized, diversified and intensive agricultural production. There were high-value crops in Chipinge, like macadamia, coffee, gums, and water, with good investments in 
infrastructure on capitalized farms, good roads and telecommunication networks. So much was at stake as one official from the Agritech department highlighted. We could not let others come and feast. There was so much at stake. For example, a macadamia plantation can sustain a family for 25 years by simply harvesting and selling. That is a fortune for a generation. So there's no way who could have let communal farmers and others just enjoy. Second, I think local dynamics like superimposition of processes from above, such as the displacement of farm workers, affected the composition of beneficiaries. Third, in their summary of settler categories, schools do not single out the category of traditional authorities, and he spreads war veterans across other categories. Fourth, a slightly different methodology that focuses on those excluded from fast track bring out different dynamics. So, myth and realities may differ from place to place, uh, which makes generalization a poor way of understanding what is happening in resettlement areas in post-2000 Zimbabwe. But even among beneficiaries of fast track, there's still evident differentiation. As some got land with high-value macadamia and gum tree plantations, differentiation here is not explained by the decision that farmers made. That is the way of perceiving, calculating, planning, and ordering the process of production. This decision was made by the displaced white farmers, and the new farmers are simply making money out of the harvest. Gum trees are economically important, and those who own these plantations have more monetary income than those without. Apart from monetary income, the gum trees also serve as medicine, uh, among other things. The next slide will show you the treated gum trees uh, that are ready to be transported at a resettlement farm. Maybe I should say that uh, I, uh, when I say gum trees also serve as a medicine, like I had a bad coffee and flu when I was carrying out field work because uh, it rains a lot in this high world. So one of my respondents advised me to boil the, the gum tree leaves, these ones, and take them as cough mixtures. Uh, I did that and I was healed. So I, I wish I had brought some for, for winter because winter is coming in. But my genuine worry is I'm not sure whether I'll be able to find this medicine when I return to Chipinge. Most new farmers who acquired land with macadamia and gum tree plantations have not bothered to reinvest in the cash crops that are bringing a fortune to their households. The accumulation is not reflective of what Bernstein understands as accumulation, which is the accumulation of capital and its reinvestment in expanding the scale of production in order to make more profit. Rather, the number of macadamia trees is decreasing, as the next slide shows, the scattered macadamia uh, trees. Those are the, the remaining number of macadamia trees on a resettlement farm. And one respondent, I think, captured it very well, who said, very soon, macadamia will be history. Kids will be reciting, once upon a time, there was macadamia in Chipinge. Let me quickly look at what were the motivations for seeking land, maybe in the next five minutes and conclude. 
Let me emphasize that not all claims to land in Chipinge were political. Claims to land are multiple and overlap, overlapping, and thus difficult to disentangle. For some, land provides an opportunity to expand production and accumulation. For others, it is a process of reclaiming ancestral land in clear cases of restitution. For some, it has political and historical significance. For others, it is a source of livelihood in an era of crisis of livelihoods. And for some, it is a source of food security for their households or a combination of the above. Though motivations are diverse, in some cases, the vehicle to fulfill such motivations was politicized and took place through patronage connections. The ruling elite's manipulation of local grievances that war veterans and chiefs had has led some scholars to say the process was wrong but the issues were right, which relegates and underplays the impact of the state's authoritarian, repressive and exclusionary politics. I therefore, in conclusion, uh, say that fast track in this context was a pro-ruling party process and let me just summarize my reasons. First, the district land commit in charge of allocating land to new beneficiaries or formalizing occupations was composed of ZANU-PF functionaries such as the district chairperson of the party. This is consistent uh, with a leading scholar on land and politics who observed at the start of Fast Track that land committees were put in place in order to ensconce politicized and partisan interests. In her seminal book, The Unsettled Land, Professor Jocelyn Alexander. Second, the, the replacement of farm workers indicated that Fast Track was far from targeting the ordinary people. Third, most ordinary families had to put their applications through ZANU-PF local structures, which excluded opposition supporters. Fourth, the nature of land occupations gave an impression that land occupation was a ZANU-PF-driven project. Fifth, gaining access to high-value crops that required special skills had nothing to do with the farming skills, but political skills. This has affected production of export crops without much concern to the state, uh, which was more concerned about political benefit rather than agricultural production. My observations are not to entirely dismiss that for some fast track, for some fast track beneficiaries, the idea was not to show up ZANU-PF is winning political support. I think Fontaine has argued that the ruling party is far narrower nationalist imagination of recent years has not necessarily obliterated or limited the nationalist imagination of others. For chiefs, war veterans who have felt themselves excluded since independence, the current politics of exclusion may seem more like a renewed opportunity for their inclusion. Close quote. My emphasis is that their inclusion was necessitated by an authoritarian ZANU-PF governing elite using land as a source of patronage to remain in power and excluded other ordinary people. Within this matrix, 
the different actors could be manipulating each other in order to shape each other's interests. But the ruling elite, the ZANU-PF ruling elite, maintains coercive power and the legal right to expel fast-track beneficiaries who fail to show political loyalty. The authoritarian and partisan nature of the state excluded many farm workers, white commercial farmers, Zanundonga and MGC supporters, and ordinary people in the communal areas in Chipinge who never had a chance. So, following fast track, a new agrarian structure has indeed emerged, but it is one shaped <coughs> mainly by socio-political dynamics rooted in the ZANU-PF ruling elite. Uh, and I think the last slide shows uh, 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 the researcher doing real field work in Chipinge on a fast track resettlement farm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, if there's anyone right at the back who's uncomfortable or can't see, there are two chairs in the front of us. to take them. <laughs>